Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of Movement is Life, an organization dedicated to eliminating health and healthcare disparities by shining a light on both the problems and solutions. I'm Rolf Taylor, your host today and producer of the series. This is the first time that the Health Disparities Podcast has focused on health equity issues for our homeless population. But homelessness is a major problem in the United States. And this is not least because of our very high poverty level. In fact, around 18% of the US population lives at or below the poverty level. Only the countries Hungary and Costa Rica actually have higher levels of poverty in the OECD countries. And it means that as many as one in five of our population are one or two paychecks away from being homeless. So our total national homeless population is close to being 580,000, like the entire population of a major city like Baltimore. And California has a disproportionate share of the nation's homeless population at around 161,000. Los Angeles has the greatest concentration of the state's homeless people. So the National Health Foundation, a California-based organization offering recuperative care in Los Angeles and Ventura counties, offers medical respite care programs as a pathway to health and housing for people experiencing homelessness. So today, thank you, Kelly Bruno, President and CEO of the National Health Foundation, for joining us to discuss healthcare for the homeless. Kelly, you're going to share some approaches and solutions that are moving the needle. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. I look forward to the conversation. I mentioned, you know, this is the first time we've talked about homelessness on the podcast. So maybe you could just frame that out for us a little bit. You know, we talk a lot about social determinants and structural drivers of health inequities. Can you talk a little bit about what are the structural drivers for homelessness? The number one structural driver of homelessness is without a doubt, the limited amount of affordable housing that exists across the country but most specifically in California. You know, you did mention California has the highest concentration of folks experiencing homelessness, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about in greater detail as the podcast continues. But California itself has a 1.4 million home of shortages of affordable housing, meaning there are 1.4 million less affordable housing options in just the state of California than we deem as necessary when we look at the folks that live here. What has existed or what we are experiencing here in California, this uh, shortage of affordable housing, is not something that accidentally happened to us as a state. You know, we didn't just wake up one day and it was like that. This is this housing crisis was absolutely designed from the beginning. You know, when we look back historically at redlining, you know, banks making loans virtually impossible for our Black communities to get they created these undesirable locations and these undesirable communities that have just exacerbated our inability to create and have affordable housing. California, Los Angeles specifically, is known for its freeways and purposely placing freeways to actually bifurcate these communities purposely. So this is not something that's just on paper, this redlining, this is stuff that is an actual reality. So the systemic segregation that I just described to you has just basically ensured that the number one indicator of wealth in this country, which is owning a home, is something that we as white people have experienced far greater than those that are black. And we've created this from the beginning. So we've created this structural driver of homelessness that you're just discussing. 
So what does this look like, you know, like in Los Angeles specifically? You know, we know that in Los Angeles, that uh, a third of the folks that are living in South LA, the black folks that are living in South LA are living in poverty. And 50% of those folks are having severe rent burden. We know that over the last 50 years, home ownership of our black community has gone down in the last 50 years from 44% to 36%. And most specifically here in Los Angeles, while blacks just make up 8% of our population, they make up 44% of our homeless population. So these structural drivers of homelessness are things that have been have existed for years, but it's basically rearing its ugly head in a way that we've never seen today. It's really remarkable when you look at um, things like redlining, that you can um, you can look at a, a map of redlined areas nationally, whether it's West Coast, East Coast, middle of the country, Chicago. And then if you look at where you see the greatest disparities right now, whether it's you know food deserts or whether it's highest prevalence of diabetes, those those maps really correlate closely. They absolutely do. And then when you look at Los Angeles, you look at the freeways and they correlate as well. I mean, it's it's as if the map wasn't good enough for us. We needed to put literally put freeways down the middle of these neighborhoods. Um, it, it's quite amazing when you look at it. It becomes a it becomes so obvious. And and for these homeless populations, can you share with us some examples? of health disparities and you know, health outcome statistics that highlight the need for solutions, um, solutions for healthcare for the homeless. Right off the top of my head, you know, two, two bigger ones are when we look at folks experiencing homelessness, right off the top, we know that the person experiencing homelessness on average dies about 12 years young earlier than any of us, any of us housed folks. And we know that they also age at a rate of about 15 years faster. So for helping somebody in one of our homeless shelters or our recuperative cares, that is 55 years of age, they have the, the health of a 70-year-old. But then when you look at other types of just general health, health concerns and issues, you see big disparities. You know, the house population on average in this country, about 9% of us are diabetic, but on the street with the homeless, it's 18%. Hypertension, you know, for us housed folks, it's about 29% of us. But for homeless folks, it's 50%. Heart attacks, 17% for us housed folks, 35% when we're looking at um, uh, those that are experiencing homelessness. And I could go on, it's, it's in, and depression is probably one of the biggest ones, or it's 8% for us that are housed and 49% for folks living on the street. So there are big time health disparities. And one of the major reasons for this, Wolf, is because, you know, living on the street is a health condition in and of itself. You know, um, exposure to communicable diseases, exposure to violence, you know, injuries because of that violence. I mean, where does one get a clean bandage, right? Where does, you know, if malnutrition, obviously an issue. If you're dealing with any of these health, health issues that I just described, where does one get that medication? And when one gets it, where does one store it? You know, um, just exposure to, to weather. I mean, imagine trying to manage all of your, those issues you know, and also manage weather at the same time. Um, you know, if you have any sort of behavioral health issues, like depression or alcoholism or even substance abuse, those things are clearly exacerbated when you're living on the street. And then it's probably inevitable that you're going to become sick. And when you do, I could not think of a worse place to try to recover than on a sidewalk. And that's exactly what happens. And so recovery from these issues, when they do occur, becomes virtually impossible. 
yeah, recovering from um, recovering from sickness is so difficult. If you're unwell, then getting back on your feet, just just getting back into housing, um, getting a job, um, seems like it must be almost impossible once you're kind of trapped in that uh, situation. It's it's a different type of way of looking at things. You know, when I when I think about my life and I get up in the morning and I think about what what my priorities are in my head. You know, I've got to get my kids off to school. I've got to shower, get ready for work. I have to fight traffic. Of course, this is post-COVID, right? When we all had offices to go to. I have to fight traffic. I may have three or four meetings on my calendar and I have to make sure my schedule goes right. I, I need to get to the grocery on the way home. I don't know what I'm going to make for dinner. You know, um, and, and then there are other little things that I have to worry about with my kids and family, et cetera. When you're experiencing homelessness, you are thinking about, Am I not going to get assaulted today? Where am I going to eat? Uh, where, where can I use the restroom? Um, if I am a female, you know, I, I have other, you know, healthcare issues that I have to try to address. Um, am I going? Is my tent going to get swept today? And I have no place to go. The, these are basic things that we take for granted that are daily struggles for folks that are living on the street. So then to expect them to be able to do all of that and manage that type of really food, shelter, clothing, basic needs, and then also try to think about getting a job, you know, worrying about their sobriety, figuring out where the, it's, it's not feasible that one can, can do those things. Um, it's, it's, it's too much. I mean, it's too much for any human, much less somebody on the street, living on the street. And that's one of the things that we say about uh, our medical respite programs or our recuperative cares, is that the first thing we have to take care of is food, shelter, clothing. Food, shelter, clothing, food available 24 hours a day, shelter available 24 hours a day, and access to clothing and, and the resources and the toiletries and things that they need in order to just be clean and be safe. When we can get somebody where those three things are constant again in their life, then they can start to focus on those other things. So tell us a little about the National Health Foundation. What's your mission? What's your reach? Who do you reach? And um, and tell us a little about your role as, as, as in your leadership role. Sure, I'd be happy to. So National Health Foundation has been around for almost 50 years. We were established in 1973. Our mission is to improve the health of under-resourced communities. And we do that by taking action on the social determinants of health. So our work primarily revolves around the social determinants of housing instability, food security, built environment, and education. And we do most of our programs, if not all of our programs, really have a community-based focus. We recognize and realize that when helping under-resourced communities, which we use that term on purpose, um, is because these communities very simply just lack the resources necessary to have the same health outcomes as the communities that don't lack those resources. You know, we know that if somebody um, has a zip code in Beverly Hills, that regardless of their genetic code, they're gonna be healthier than somebody who's living in South LA. And the only reason for that is because of the lack of resources. So our mission and our job is to try to equal the playing field, if you will, and to bring those resources into the community. We don't say that we bring in the empowerment, or anything of that nature, because we feel very strongly that these communities are already empowered, they're already educated, they know what they need, they simply don't have the resources. So that is what we do. So we, even our recuperative care facilities, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later, which provides care for folks experiencing homelessness that are leaving the hospital, 
um, are done from a community-based perspective. So when we go into communities and we open these shelters and these centers, we do so with the community in mind and oftentimes have a community group that actually meets at our site and really drives the community work that we do outside of the four walls of the shelter. So some examples of that are health fairs that we provide. Uh, we've done vaccination clinics. We've done food distributions. We just had a health fair and, and, uh, and a block party just last Friday at our Pico Union facility. So our success lies in our ability to genuinely, transparently, and continuously partner with, with the communities with, with, where, with which our centers reside or where they're located. Uh, without that community support and that community engagement, we would not be nearly as successful. So for you, the key to success is those partnerships, it's feet on the ground, it's, it's engagement with those local community organizations that you can partner with. A hundred percent, and not just the community organizations, but the actual community, the people that, you know, the, the residents of that community, because the needs and the barriers to health that exist in those communities are, have been identified by those that live there. You know, for example, in our Pico Union facility, they very much need and want local dental care, right? Local dental and local clinic care within that neighborhood that we're in. So National Health Foundation just wrote a grant to the Amundsen Foundation and was awarded a grant amount that's going to allow us to put a mobile clinic at our site that will be open not only to the guests of our facility, but also to the guests, I mean, to the neighbors that live there. But those needs are unique to Pico Union. We can't just take that exact model and then move it over to our other site. You know, our site, for example, in Arlita, that community group has identified different barriers to health. They want us to make sure that our, that our building includes a congregate kitchen because they want to make sure that the seniors that live around that building a little bit older than the other community have a place to get free lunch during the day. They've also made a request for us to, to see if we can start an adult daycare. So these are completely different health barriers than Pico Union. Our lead is experiencing different ones, but these are, these are issues that are coming up that are being raised by the people that actually live there. Our goal our job is to help them reduce those barriers. We don't identify them, they identify them. And I think that's a very important difference. You shared with us a case study, um, which has just been published by the Commonwealth Fund, that talks about Maureen, a diabetic, who found herself homeless as a senior uh, when she lost her income. And I was actually surprised looking at uh, some of the statistics, just what a significant proportion of uh, homeless people are actually seniors or over, over 50s. So she's a diabetic. She, she ends up living in her car with her dog and she can't manage her diabetes. She ends up in hospital. That's when the hospital calls you at the National Health Foundation asking for help. Can you take up the story from there and, and tell us how your program works? First off, your, your point is exactly spot on. Older adults experiencing homelessness is the fastest growing subset population in the country of folks experiencing homelessness. It's expected to raise by 75% in Los Angeles by the year 2030. It is absolutely expanding by leaps and bounds. So Maureen, unfortunately, is not the exception. Um, 
at this point, she's more so the rule. And you absolutely described what happened to her. And oftentimes that happens to Maureen and others because of affordable housing issues. A spouse passes away, rents go up, income is reduced. The results are living in their car, which is exactly what happened to, to Maureen. So the hospital calls us and they let us know that they have somebody experiencing homelessness that does have some medical conditions that require some monitoring. So medical respite is a program across the country that is unlicensed and unregulated for the most part across the country. But it is for folks experiencing homelessness that need a place to go and recuperate. I always say if you and I, someone who's housed or housed neighbors uh, fell ill and were to go to the hospital and were to leave the hospital, we would not go right to work, right, That from the hospital. We would go home. We would need to recuperate, to rest for a few days, to watch some, some um, you know, trashy television, and then go back uh, to work in a few days. Well, when you're experiencing homelessness, you do not have that home to go to. So medical respite or recuperative care provides that home. So Maureen was able to come to our facility and get a few necessary services. First, like I mentioned before, basic food, shelter, and clothing absolute basic food, shelter, and clothing, no need to worry about that, which allowed her the opportunity to focus on her health and her sobriety. Um, through our nursing department and our, our nursing case management, she's able to learn about her medications, manage her medications, her insulin and things of that nature on her own, um, as well as from our social services team to be able to provide and look for housing options that work for her. So Maureen, fortunately, left our facility and went into a sober living facility where she stayed for the duration of that program and I'm happy to report is now living um, successfully and so and, and living sober with her sister in Las Vegas. So she is now re, um, re, reunited with her family. That's wonderful. So she's she's doing well and she's in a family environment. I mean, I was just thinking as you were talking about how um, you know, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about it, it's a challenge for anybody going in in uh, into in in for a hospital procedure that requires a lot of recuperation. That might be um, knee replacement. It could be a kidney transplant, and this requirement affects whether or not they can actually get that intervention. Because if it's somebody who's living alone, if it's somebody who doesn't have a a social um, a social support system that can take care of them when they come out the decision is often simply not to do the intervention. So this is this is kind of one step away from the challenges for homeless people, but a similar problem. Exactly. And, and, and doing that on the street is, you know, is, is, is impossible. I mean, one of the reasons that California has as big of an issue with homelessness as we have is because we have the highest population of unsheltered homeless folks. You know, states like, like New York, uh, Chicago, they have something that's called uh, the right to shelter or the right to housing, which means that they have a shelter bed or a you know interim housing bed for every person that's experiencing homelessness in their state or their city. Los Angeles does not have that. We have the high, like I said, the highest percentage of unsheltered homeless in the entire country. I believe in California, we're at like 72% of the folks experiencing homelessness are living on the street. Well, there is nothing that exacerbates the health issues more than living outside. 
So you live outside, you have more health issues, you experience more violence, more trauma, you have longer bouts of homelessness for things like you just described, and the cycle continues. And so people cannot get out of homelessness in California because of those things. But the health issues, I think, are, I don't think we talk enough about the health issues. I mean, housing is health, right? In order to be healthy, you must have a house. You will not be healthy without a house. And I think that we minimize that a lot. And now with the aging of this population, it's just going to become worse. There was so much interest in that movie, Nomadland. Mm-hmm. Looking at Maureen's case study, and this is a real person, um, but it really made me think of that. It's, it's, it's an older person, it's a senior person who is finding it very difficult to uh, to fit into the you know traditional um, the, the traditional lifestyle. So much about that movie, Nomadland, seemed to resonate. Uh, with what's going on with homelessness. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And her 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 role and her, you know, like you said, it's a real a real person is exactly what's happening. I mean, what could happen in her life, you know, what her husband passed away, if I remember correctly, you know, so her income was reduced, you know, and so here she is and 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 she's traveling, you know. Um, you know, at least she had a van with which to live, but but still absolutely homelessness. And it was interesting in that movie just to see how one small, you know, financial setback, you know, really does make a big, you know, in her van, you know, was um, was broken and how, how that can just completely derail her. And that's exactly what happens. The graying of, if you want to say, of, of the homeless population is something that we are, I mean, we think, we think we're having problems now. <laughs> you know, we're going to have massive problems as these numbers continue to rise. Um, National Health Foundation, I think this may have even happened since we spoke last, but we were just awarded from the city of Los Angeles a brand new building um, that will provide interim housing and recuperative care specifically for older adults experiencing homelessness. And it is 148 beds in a 45,000 square foot building to be able to provide specifically for this population. It'll be the first in Los Angeles to do this. But the research tells us, and we see this, that this is who is going to need our help the most. But now we face issues, policy issues, right? We face policy issues with reimbursement to take care of this vulnerable population. You know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, if you're 55 years old, medically you're 70. So think about who you know in your life that's 70 years old and what ails them, their, their physical limitations, right? What medicine, they're on medicines, they go see the doctor. There are things happening in their life that are different than somebody who's 25 or 30. And right now, our model of care is really designed for a 35-year-old, not a 75-year-old. And so how do we make policy changes for reimbursement rates and really quality of care designed around this population that is very rapidly going to become the largest homeless population in the country? And I'm presuming that Part of the uh, problem that we're predicting in the future, because this is a growing population, is that we have an aging population, but we have an aging population that um, that that already has a, a significant degree of financial insecurity. Exactly. These are the baby boomers, right? These are the baby boomers that are coming up that, you know, that that's exactly what's happening. And so fiscally or financially, they're already fragile. 
um, and they've lived, you know, pretty modestly, if you will. And now, like I said, a spouse passes away, the loss of a job, a lack of resources, a lack of affordable housing, they get priced out, you know, of where they're living, and they end up homeless. They end up in a car, they end up in their van, and then they end up in a shelter. And to get out of that situation um, is, is virtually impossible. You know, the good news is when it comes to that population that oftentimes there are resources available for them. You know, there are, you know, social security or there are other, you know, other, other benefits that they may be eligible for that could help place them. But when there's a lack of affordable places to place them, that also becomes difficult. Um, it, it, it's really a, a, a horrible cycle uh, uh, that, that really doesn't get resolved unless we have places where people can afford to stay. It's a huge inequality problem, isn't it? Because I don't know what the median household income would be of people who are you know, very close to homelessness, but it's, it's probably, what, twenty to $30,000 a year. And those people are getting priced out by people who are working in tech, working in other occupations, and they're getting paid $150,000, $200,000 a year and, and simply can't compete when it comes to housing. They absolutely can't. And then, and then you know, then you look at, you know, Los Angeles and you look at how diverse we are, which is one of our strengths. But then also, you know, these, these are the folks that are disproportionately affected by homelessness. I mean, you go down streets in Los Angeles, you know, e- even in the communities where we, where we are, Rolf, and it's like you, there's a reason you see so many cars and these areas are, 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 are so congested. It's because there are four or five, six people living in a one bedroom apartment, you know, because they can't afford not they can't afford otherwise and um and they're you know kind of doing it quietly or they're not making a big a big to do about it but the reality is is that there are a lot of people living in these very small apartments or you know or homes because they simply cannot afford to live alone and you mentioned um reimbursement a little earlier how important was it that california expanded medicaid eligibility um, under the affordable care act in terms of improving health of homeless populations the Affordable Care Act was was huge. You know, it was it was it was definitely a big move in the right direction. And, and, and quite honestly and bluntly, it was because it made everybody have insurance, right? If you are homeless, you are now eligible for insurance because you are low income. And so you are covered for free. That's the good news. The bad news is that that little insurance card in your pocket or in your wallet does not guarantee you access to healthcare. It just it just guarantees that you have the coverage. And so granting access and getting access for folks experiencing homelessness has not gotten much better. So the insurance is there, but the access not so much so. You know, you have to choose a primary care physician. When you don't have a home, how do you choose a primary care physician? Or what happens oftentimes or how the health plans work is if you don't make that choice, as I'm sure we all know, the health plan makes it for you. You know, that's happened to me before. You know, my insurance, I didn't choose a a, a primary care physician and I got a letter in the mail that told me that someone had been chosen for me. Well, guess what? I got a letter in the mail telling me someone had been chosen for me. If you're homeless, you don't have a place to receive that mail. So you have no idea who your doctor is. Even if you did know, how do you get to that doctor? So the, the card is great, but the access, not so great. What is exciting about some things that are happening, and one thing particularly in California, is something called CalAIM. 
And CalAIM is our Medi-Cal waiver that has been rewritten and will take effect in January of 2022. And this waiver or this CalAIM program includes 13 community supports that are things that were not covered by Medi-Cal that are now deemed to be uh, reimbursable and covered um, services. For example, grab bars in someone's home. Um, you know, um, home health has been expanded tremendously. Um, community health workers are now going to be covered. Medically tailored meals will now be covered. Uh, but what's most important and relevant for this conversation is that medical respite and recuperative care will now become a benefit in the, um, in the Affordable Care Act in Medi-Cal. So folks that come to us and come to our, to our programs will now have a medical benefit that will allow them to be there. This is huge, huge, because right now, because our services are not a Medi-Cal benefit, hospitals are paying for those services and they are determining a person's length of stay. Um, sometimes it's five days, sometimes it's 10. It's very rarely more than 20. And so we have to, we can only do so much for these folks um, in that time period. Now that Cal AIM is covering a medical respite, these folks will have a 90 day benefit every year to be able to really recuperate and get the housing, the housing you know, uh, navigation that they need in order to go to the next step in their housing path. So this is a huge, huge um, addition to the Affordable Care Act and that California is setting, setting the bar, I believe, in this. Now, California, of course, has, like we've said many times, has more homeless than any state in the country. And we also have more medical respite programs appropriately than any state in the country. So it makes sense that California will be the first to do this. Uh, it's been a little bit of a, of, a, of a shuffle trying to get it ready, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of bumps in the road. But I'm very encouraged by not only the medical respite benefit, but several of the um, community supports that are now going to be covered by Medi-Cal. Will capacity be able to grow in response to that reimbursement? Well, that is the million dollar question that I keep asking um, over and over again is, will capacity be able to keep up with, uh, with need? I, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that we absolutely do not have the capacity now that we need to provide services for the 60,000 plus folks that are living on the street. Uh, I think that, you know, if we were to close our eyes and, and reopen them five, five years from now, maybe even three years from now, we'll see much more capacity as, you know, folks get their, you know, get their sea legs or there's going to be other, I'm sure, for-profits that will enter the sector. Um, people will have the capacity to expand. I mean, right now it's very difficult. You know, I can speak from National Health Foundation's perspective. It's very difficult to expand your services in this space when you do not have a guaranteed reimbursement structure. When you are building out facilities that really are low, you know, low end, they probably are the equivalent of an assisted living, you know, somewhere between a nursing home and an assisted living. When you're building facilities with this capability, with a staffing pattern that mirrors that, and you have no guaranteed revenue source, it, make, it makes it very difficult to sustain. Um, and then also opening new ones, quite a lofty you know, uh, financial risk. But now that there's a consistent revenue stream, I think we will see capacity grow, but it's gonna take a few years. Yeah, it's, it can't possibly um, be instant. Um, mm -hmm. 
that's all about scaling, isn't it? Scaling the solution. We see a lot of good solutions that are that are, that are in search of a, a a path to scaling. Hundred percent. How do you how do you scale what you're doing? And and um, you know, and 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 medical recognizing that what we do is a service that needs to be reimbursed. I could not think of a better uh, solution to to scalability than a reimbursement you know, a structure. But I do think there's more that we need. You know, what I talked about earlier with really recognizing that when you're talking about serving folks experiencing homelessness, you're not talking about one group of people that have the exact same needs. You know, similarly to how we have an assisted living that's different than a nursing home, that's different than a boarding care, that's, you know, we we have different levels of places where people go when they need services because folks have different needs. And our homeless population is no different. So, you know, looking at legislation, looking at policy, looking at reimbursement structures, even at the local level, because of course, you know, not everybody needs a medical respite. So of course, you've got your local municipalities and your counties and your cities that are paying for these services as well. But how do we work with these folks to say, the best way to work with the homeless is to recognize their individual needs and to provide and create service lines that are indirect, you know, directly address their unique needs. Because if we don't, we just continue to put the square peg in the round hole. People end up right back into homelessness because their issues were not identified or resolved in the first place. So it sounds like you're really, you really are making progress and, you know, we have um, Movement is Life is a pretty extended community of people who are all working in different ways to address health disparities. Um, so, what would you say are some of the wider lessons um, that you could share um, based on your experience with National Health Foundation um, building out this recuperative care model? One of the biggest lessons we've learned is that the person absolutely has to be in the center of anything that you do. And oftentimes we as um, the housed community, social workers, CEOs of nonprofits, you know, we have ideas and concepts in our mind and biases, quite honestly, that drive what we think services should look like. Instead of doing that, we really need to engage the folks we're serving to help us provide services in a way that works for the population we're trying to serve. Uh, And that means that we have to let go of our judgments and our biases, and we have to create spaces that are low barrier, spaces where we're not judging somebody if they're using, right, if if they're drunk or they're using drugs. We're not going to use metal detectors um, to to scan them when they come in. Um, We're going to make sure that there's no curfews right? Because I, I always say I'm 51 years old. No one's given me a curfew. Why would I Why would I say I can give anybody a curfew, right? We're not checking people's bags. We're trusting the folks that we're serving. We're leaving our biases and our, you know, at the door and helping people where they are. That is, in my opinion, the absolute biggest lesson when it comes to providing these services, because we just, we, we, we just place our own biases and judgments on people and, 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 and I think, honestly, in an attempt to make us feel better um, about the way of the world. But when it comes to providing services, that is absolutely imperative. You know, no, no background checks, 
no, we don't need to do background checks. We don't do drug tests, all those kind of things. And you create a low barrier space and then you'll be surprised at how it treat people like that. You'll be surprised at how well they do. I also think that other, another big lesson, and I had said earlier, and we'll say again, is you absolutely have got to create these programs in, in conjunction with or alongside the communities with which they reside. These, these programs are a part of a community. We call ourselves a neighbor in the, in the communities that we're in, and we have to act like a neighbor. We all know what it means to have a good neighbor, and we all know what it means to have a bad neighbor, right? And we are neighbors. And so how do we conduct ourselves in that way? Neighbors are not perfect, right? Neighbors have good, you know, there's good things about neighbors and bad things about neighbors, but the relationship you have with the neighbor at the end of the day is what deems it to be a successful relationship or not. And so we as providers are neighbors in existing communities. And our job is to engage that community in that process. It allows us to help them understand that the folks that we're serving are no different than them. They're not scary. They're, they're, they're quite literally their neighbors. So how do we create programs that bring the folks into the building, right? Do things alongside us so that they can see that there's nothing to be afraid of, that these folks are just like them. And then they are engaged in providing those services. We solve homelessness one community at a time. And that, and you can't do that unless you engage the surrounding community in that. Well, you know what? I, I know there's a lot of our listeners who've been involved with our Operation Change program will be applauding what you're saying, because um, <laughs> I think that's the, that's the philosophy that's very central to why those programs have been successful in that they really do put, you know, humanity at the center, put the individual communities at the center um, and work to serve them. In, in developing those solutions and, and um, just creating a space for the communities to develop their own solutions. And we have to be willing to give up that power, Rolf, which I think a lot of us are not willing to do. You know, we, all this sounds great on paper, but then when it comes to actually doing it and giving up that power, that's where, where the rubber hits the road, right? We have to give up that power. So do you have any questions for us at Movement Is Life? Anything you're curious about that we're doing? Well, you had said that that what I had just discussed was really your um, really your mantra as well, and really your philosophy. I would love to hear a little bit about the work that you do that aligns with that. Yeah, so the um, the Operation Change program is is really something that that came out of an understanding that um, we were seeing health disparities, particularly in women of color um, and older women of color. And that there were real challenges in in really um, getting getting um, people to think about increasing their physical activity. And I think the more we looked at this, the more we realized that this was a very um, a very holistic solution that was that was needed um, and 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 quite complex. So um, what was convened was a was a program where um, we would go into communities, um, we'd group, we'd bring together, you know, 30 to 50 older ladies. And um, we'd actually kind of use the support group model to bring about increases in physical activity. And part of this was really just sitting down with, with these groups and saying, you know, what would you like to do if we've got 12 to 18 weeks 
to to explore this? What are the kind of things that you'd like to learn about? What are the kind of things that you'd like to do? So in most cases, the program grew out of the participants' own ideas about, well, we should get this person to come and talk to us. I know somebody who can do this. It was very much like a social network model. Um, but I think the, the biggest lesson that came for us from that whole program was that what made it successful was the, uh, was, was the community that was created between the individuals in the groups, that there was this kind of bonding process that took place um, in a, you know, it was like a two or three hour session once a week for 18 weeks. And during that time, something really, really fundamental changed. And I think there was a, a big surprise that actually what this was really about was how hard it is once you get kind of past your 50s, into your 60s, into your 70s, into your 80s, and you lose some friends, some friends pass away, some friends move away, and you find yourself being quite isolated, and then you get into a kind of routine that really isn't healthy and is a little bit kind of insular. And what the program did was really kind of break through that and, you know, force people together. And we've interviewed a lot of participants actually for the podcast. And I always struck it, it, it kind of sounds to me like um, how it is when you like go away and get your first job and you all the new friends you make or when you go away to college and all the new friends you make, those bonds are very, very supportive during that period. And we don't often get that opportunity to do that again later in life, right? And so, and I was thinking, I wonder if you've got that same kind of dynamic going on um, with your, you know, respite care centers, that part of what's really working is that people are in the same situation and they can be supportive to each other. It's so, it's so funny that you say that. I think that's exactly, exactly the case. And that's actually one of the foundations of the new site that we're opening in Arlita that I mentioned for specifically for older adults experiencing homelessness. You know, it was a, it was an assisted living, how it was originally built to be. And the city, you know, wanted us to turn it into basically permanent supportive housing or some kind of, you know, for, and I, and I, and I, I, I pushed back on that because I said, you're going to be creating 75 isolation pods. You know I mean? What right. this population needs the most is opportunities to come out of the room, opportunities to socialize, to engage with folks that are just like them, to have space, you know, a congregate, a congregate kitchen or a, you know, dining room that looks like a dining room where somebody comes and serves them and they, you know, they get to socialize with, with their neighbors. Um, exactly what you just described is, 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 is a, it's a sense of community. It's a sense of normality. Um, it's a, it's developmentally necessary, Right. And it's a very effective, apparently, it's a very effective antidepressant. Mm -hmm. um, it's one, we, one thing we saw with the Operation Change participants is that, you know, we were, we, were doing, uh, we were doing metrics and testing around things like, you know, obviously increasing physical activity, but we were also looking at, um, at uh, mental, uh, mental health measures as well. And so we definitely had a reduction in uh, depression symptoms. I would expect so. That makes that's that's wonderful. I would really thank you for sharing that. That's great news. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and and sharing the great work you're doing at the National Health Foundation. Sounds like you're really moving the needle, and really appreciate your perspectives today. 
I appreciate you having me. These opportunities like you just provided are important for us to do our work. So we really appreciate the opportunity.